Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's interview is with Stephen Norton, the director of the New Hampshire Center for Public Policy Studies, a nonprofit policy think tank that provides nonpartisan analysis to decision makers in New Hampshire in both the public and private sectors. In this podcast, Steve gives us a unique insider view into how the center produces its analysis so that it is evidence based and as non ideological as possible. Steve also shares his 25 years of experience working in public policy, both at the state and federal level, and concludes with recommendations for early careerists who might be interested in a career in health policy. Welcome to The Forge, Steve. Thanks, Mark. So you received your Bachelor of Arts from Wesleyan University. Where is Wesleyan and why did you choose to go there? Uh, Wesleyan University is in Connecticut, a little town, middle town, and I chose to go there for the reason that many do, and a friend of mine had gone to Wesleyan. Good uh, but I also uh, had applied to two other, three other schools, Williams, Bates in Maine, and Princeton, which my father went to. Okay. And for reasons which are apparent to most father-sons, I wasn't probably going to go to Princeton. Um, but uh, I got waitlisted at Williams, which was my first choice. Okay. And so I went and I visited Wesleyan again. I fell in love with the campus, and I ended up going there. Okay. Yeah. Your first job coming out of Wesleyan was uh, at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. What is the Urban Institute? And, and talk about how did your education and experiences at Wesleyan prepare you uh, for your role as a research assistant? I can say without any hyperbole that my education at Wesleyan basically has set me up for my entire professional career, Okay, including my graduate uh, yeah. degree. I majored in um, uh, something called the College of Social Studies. Okay was a, a special program that you had to apply to. You got into your sophomore year, and basically it was a seminar-based, ungraded, uh-huh. uh, except at the end of the year in which you get, get, got superior, passed, or failed. Okay. And No pressure. No pressure there. <laughs> and basically it was every week you were reading some classic piece of political literature or economics literature, and uh, you'd write a piece of, of work on it, a, a paper five, seven pages, and the professors would review it over the weekend, and then you would have that next first couple of days engaging in a conversation about everyone's papers. And so it was, it was an amazing program, and as, as the years got on, you got more sophisticated, and the topics became uh, more sophisticated, more difficult, and the seminar component became less important, and it became more traditionally a class-based or lecture-based piece of work. And then, of course, at the end, you had to write a thesis. Okay. which is unusual for an undergraduate yeah. program. And I met and had some great professors, uh, but the, the learning how to learn, the learning how to consume information, digest it, and recreate it for others to understand has really been the centerpiece of my work all my entire career. Okay. And so um, I was really lucky because yeah. I lucked into it. Um, as those things sometimes happen, yeah. a friend of mine was looking at the College of Social Studies and yeah. said, you should come talk to the professors. And I really enjoyed it. So, in any event, I left Wesleyan 
wasn't sure. I had a friend in DC and was reaching out to my network of friends to see where I was going to live primarily. And I ran into a former alumni of Wesleyan in DC who worked at the Urban Institute. Okay. And at the time, my then professor, Bob Wood, was going to, was uh, trying to set me up with uh, interviews with Ralph Nader. Really? Uh, Ralph Nader was starting a healthcare think tank, if you will, at that time. This was back in 1990. And I, at the same time, I was speaking with this guy named Ron, who was a, a Wesleyan alum at the Urban Institute. And I had incredible programming skills because one of the ways I paid for my college experience was I did coding and programming at the, at the Science Center at the university. So I learned how to code. I understood how computers worked. And did you learn that in college or did you learn I, that prior to coming to well, college? Well, I, lear I learned that in high school of all okay, things. Okay. Back in those days, yeah. that was unusual. Yeah. Um, but uh, I learned how to code in high school and then I used that in college to pay for uh, at least a par part of my college education. And, and the Urban Institute essentially hired me uh -huh. because I was really good at that. At coding? At coding. And because I had you know, some political science background, some economics background, and, and so I got... I got fit for the organization because of that. That's right, because of the skills. And you had the, and and I you had had the, the coding. That's right, yeah. Interesting. So, but the story of Ralph Nader is actually kind of interesting because my professor Bob Wood had set me up to have lunch with Ralph Nader, and I did. And I was pretty starstruck, as you can imagine, big sure. name. Sure, sure. Uh, and he offered me the job to run this healthcare think tank, which seemed surprising to me that they'd put a 21-year-old, but yeah. that was the model that he used across all of his issue areas. A very young, very smart young, person. smart, uh, hungry uh -huh. person. Uh, unfortunately, he offered me a salary that would not have paid my loans. Okay, okay. And so uh, had to put that one aside. But I went to the Urban Institute, and the, the structure there was really fantastic for a young person. You had some, someone coming in, very skilled in a certain area, obviously very green. Mm -hmm had a mentor that was just a couple of years older than me, and that person sort of mentored a whole group of these people who were largely doing coding, you know, work to help the research folks understand what was happening. And the Urban Institute is basically an organization that, across multiple different topics, provides nonpartisan information research to the, the world out there, the policymaking world. Okay. Uh, so, so they, they didn't bring you in to do issues stuff. They didn't. Initially. Nope. nope. And in fact, one of the one of the, the strange revelations I've had about almost every job I've had is that the best person is rarely the one who's trained precisely in the piece of work that you're being asked to do. Okay. So that you hire for personality, you hire for the person's talents, you hire for hunger and interest in improving the world, if that's the particular approach you're doing, or, or helping people in the Medicaid program, or whatever it is. You know, that's, so they hired those types of people, and um, they hired me for a skill set, and they fit me in okay. where I was most needed. So you, you said Nader was looking at you for uh, health. Did you know you wanted to work in health at that point, coming out of college? I mean, or, did, or was that just kind of random? It was... Uh, it was I'm trying to remember what, I think it was that I had, I mean, I honestly, at 21 years old, needed a job. Okay. And they put okay. me so in. So it was just luck. It, it was luck. They yeah. put me into the health policy world and at the Urban Institute. And 
we had these ment mentors who were maybe master's level people okay. who managed the relationship between us and the big wigs who were the thinkers and right. the people setting the research agenda and the like. Okay. Uh, very quickly, um, they moved me up into the position of helping manage and create a link between you know, the researchers and the, the real nuts and bolts of research, the programming of SAS and SPSS and these analytic tools. And I had so you moved up into this role that the uh, a mentor that you were describing yep. that you had come in and somebody was so fairly quickly okay yep okay and it, I think if you ask them why it was because I had this already this analytic experience at college mm -hmm. that was about information and so while I was a good coder I also had the ability to bridge the gap between those analytic questions that we were trying to answer and the work that was being done and so. But I also had three really amazing mentors at the Urban Institute. One was the, eventually became the director, a guy named Steve Zuckerman, and a woman named Jenny Kenny, and a woman named Lisa Dubay. And they were smart. They understood that I was skilled, that I was also ambitious. And so, but they also really took me under their wing and helped me understand the research process, uh, the set of skills that you need to be successful in defining what a research agenda looks like and, and then implementing that research agenda. And I'm still quite close with all three of them. That's great. Yeah. So coming in, we're brand new. You were working on kind of projects. People were giving you things saying, here, do this. That's I mean, correct. Okay. Yep. So this was the mentor would, would kind of parse out the, the work? So we'd have, every week we'd have a team meeting the, so that n everyone understood what the research questions were that we were asking, where we were in the research agenda, and then uh, we'd go off into our various teams and people would say, I need you to build this data set. Okay. Or I need you to run this set of regressions. Okay. Or I need you to um, bring these two data sets together. Very, very um, task oriented. And then when you got up into that management, or the more of a manager position really wasn't. It was just sort of leading a team. The questions became more, how do you bring these different tasks together in a timely fashion, in a way that's meaningful, to help the researcher understand these questions that they're engaging in? Okay. okay. And uh, So a skill set then kind of at the next level is trying to help the, the researcher break down the question that's so correct. it's important yeah. to understand what he's, he or she is asking so that you can then kind of That's right. break it into manageable pieces. That's right. Okay. And some people never did it. Some yeah. people stayed and there were people, I, I was at the Urban Institute for eight years. There were people who came in at the same time I did who just wanted to be and became better and better and better and more sophisticated coders. Okay. And so those folks built models and, and stayed in their their rooms and, and, did, and did their analytic work. Did very sophisticated stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's, it, so is that a career path? It is, is a, a, it a, was a, it was a meaningful career path. And it just, when, what happened with me was, I was a very good programmer, but to me it was a, I mean, it was, it was enjoyable. I enjoyed doing it, but it was a tool more so than an end in and of itself. And there were people who that was what they wanted to do. They wanted to build out models and use multiple different languages to construct these things that helped research answer questions. But I wanted to eventually ask those questions and yeah. be the one who defined the agenda. 
So you moved from being a research assistant to a research associate. That was the, that's the mentor level? That was the mentor level, that's okay. right. And at okay. the same time, they asked me if I wanted to go back to school. And okay. so they right. paid for me to go back to Georgetown okay. to get my master's. And, and you got your master's in policy. I did, yep. With an with a emphasis in? Health economics. economics. Okay. And so you had decided, I'm, I'm guessing at that point you had decided health is something I want to really focus on. Yes, that's right. Okay. And How did that come about? I mean, other than well, you've I, been exposed to it a I bit? Would, I was, yeah, I'd been exposed to it, obviously, with, at the Urban Institute because um, by that time, these mentor relationships that I had had resulted in work with uh, work on you know, big health care policy issues that occurred in the 90s. Expansion of Medicaid program, the to pregnant women and children, the Health Care Reform Act of 1996, that which was the last Clinton effort at expanding health care. So um, I'd been exposed to it. I think it, the reason why I didn't go specifically into, say, a PhD program in healthcare, healthcare economics, was that I wasn't 100% certain that I wanted to be health policy focused, all of my focus. Okay. I thought there are lots of interesting policy topics. Um, there are lots of different ways of thinking about health. So I went into this program. Two really important professors shaped the, the, my career. Uh, one was a person who taught essentially applied policy. And what does that mean? So that means there's policy work, which is you take a data set and you ask an empirical question and you answer that question and you make recommendations off of it. And then there is that, uh, that applied policy world where you have to make decisions. You often don't have 100% of the information you need to make a good decision. Mm -hmm. And so you have to figure out the six or seven different ways that you can answer this question and triangulate to the right answer. Okay. And so this, this was the most important class that I had, and I'm unfortunately drawing a blank on the professor's name, but she essentially gave us a tool set of 10 different ways of answering empirical questions so that if that one doesn't answer it, you can do it and um, use these other methods to get to the right, the right answer. So that, that's what I mean when applied. Okay. And the other important person was Janet Mitchell. Uh, who was my thesis advisor, and she and I wrote a paper on the uncompensated care decisions that hospitals make, and it got accepted at the American Economic Society's annual meeting, and wow. I gave a presentation on it, and it was an eye-opener to me about this world of um, academics, people who are really trying to answer behavioral questions that had gone unanswered about healthcare and healthcare policy making. And so those two courses helped build an appreciation for this ivory tower and also an appreciation for the the use of many different techniques to do applied work. Okay. And so I carried both of those with me and strangely enough what happened next was the endowment uh, excuse me the the Urban Institute was funded to look at something called the new federalism. Okay. Which was a, what they felt, or what the, the, founder, the funders felt, was an effort on the part of the federal government, which was then thinking about health care reform, of pushing or devolving all power down to the states. In health care? In health care. Okay. Never happened, obviously. Right, right. In fact, exactly. And that would have been like Medicare and... The the Medicaid and... Um, mostly Medicaid and um, some of the long-term care decisions. So 
this was also the time of welfare reform when you know we're trying to let states uh, redefine what they were doing. So I spent a good portion of my time traveling around the country talking to state programs about what they were doing, their efforts at improving healthcare in their communities, how the safety net providers, those providers that provide a significant portion of care to the uninsured were faring and how they were dealing with the evolving world of Medicaid and, and healthcare. Can and you give an example of what a safety net provider, what does yeah, that mean? So uh, there are hospitals, there obviously in the, in the hospital industry there are for-profit hospitals, HCA hospitals and the like, uh, and then there are a whole series of nonprofit or, uh, organizations that play different roles. So anyone who, who provides a disproportionate share of their care to low-income or you know, challenged people. And okay. often they're urban. And so I would travel around to Miami, for okay. example. And in Broward County, you'd, look, you'd see five different hospitals in that community, one of which cared for 40 or 50% of the, the community's uninsured. That would be a safety net provider, a provider who's a, a provider of last resort. Okay. And that was fascinating stuff. And in fact, that shaped where I was going to go next. By you know, eight or nine years, I decided that it was time for me to move on. And by that time, I was beginning the outlines of a family. And, and we made a decision, my then girlfriend, now wife, to either go to the Northwest or the Northeast. Okay. And it was at her discretion. And because I could take what my skills anywhere. Sure. By that time, I was well-known in the health policy world as having expertise in a couple of areas. Um, and I was young enough that uh, I wasn't going to be too expensive for somebody to, to pay for, um, to okay. work. So That's a benefit. It was a benefit. It is. Job, right? It is. Um, and, you know, my wife was, of the two of us, she had a more specific skill set, but probably she was the more, more, more employable than I was. And so, so we looked at north, in the Northwest. Um, we looked mostly in the Northwest at first, because I think I wanted to go experience a different part of the, the world. And she got a couple of job offers that were okay. And then one day we were in Montana, she and I, and I got a phone call from the governor's office here in New Hampshire. And my resume had been floating around. Okay. And they uh, had seen that I was a New Hampshire native and said, there, we think you should come and check out a couple of jobs here. Now, had you, had you floated that to them or had this just kind of Cut, came made out it of through the blue. your network? Made it through the network. Okay. And these days, that happens like that. Sure, with electronics. Electronics. Yeah. I, to this day, I, I'm not exactly sure how they got a hold of my resume. But so two weeks later, we had flown up. That speaks to just doing good work and getting that's known, right. right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, you know, half the, half the problem is just showing up, as they say. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, and then things happened so fast that um, there was a job in, at Health and Human Services here in New Hampshire in the Office of Planning and Research. Um, there was a, uh, an opening in the governor's office for my wife, you know, or maybe it was that there was there were offerings. In any event, we both had a job oh, to okay. fall into. Very nice. And so a month after we had had the initial conversations, I moved here. Wow. Yeah. No kids. No. You know, very little material things made it Makes easy. That easy. Yeah. 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 I remember those days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are now gone for me as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what made you decide, hey, I think it's time to make this jump? I mean, you, you were obviously doing well at the Urban Institute. You were becoming well-known across uh, through that organization. Yeah. What, what made you decide, hey, it's time for a change? I want to you know, look at something different. One of the great experiences, one of the many things that came out of going to states and talking to individual people and the, the folks that were tr actually trying to get things accomplished on the ground level was that I learned that the think tanks that are doing publishable work are not often providing information in a way that is useful to those that are actually trying to create programs at the policy level. Okay, so a little so, more theoretical as opposed to applied exactly. that we were talking yep. about earlier. Yep. So you were thinking after maybe after your master's degree that you, maybe you wanted to do something a little more applied. I did. And the Urban Institute gave me a chance to go learn. And then I thought when I, when I left Urban, I thought I was going to go to a state, learn about what it means to be embedded in a, a policy-making structure, and how you bring this information into the policy-making structure. I certainly read enough books about it. And so with an eye at the time to bringing four or five of my close friends around the country to build a management consulting firm. Okay, so long term. Long term, the idea had been, let's learn about what it's like to actually have to help these communities make policy decisions and bridging the gap between the ivory tower and the, you know, the, the guy on the street, woman on the street that's making the policy decision. So a bunch of us went off and did these interesting jobs. And that for me, you know, working with the, in the Office of Planning and Research, I certainly learned about how you create information, use information internally, and use that also with the legislature and other policymakers to try and move things forward. So this was your first job. So you actually did wind up taking the job mm -hmm. with, uh, uh, with the New Hampshire state government yep. in the Office of Planning and Research. Yep. So what is that organization? What, what's, its, what's its mission? So it, that, that organization was created to help the state craft a 10-year health policy plan. Okay. And it was designed as an organization also to provide the health and human services leadership with an understanding of the policies, the activities that were going on across the country, the, the policy uh, initiatives that were occurring in various regions within New Hampshire, and bring that back together to make it a cohesive you know, whole. Uh, they, activities were funded at that time by the federal government and to some extent by the, um, the state government. Uh, it was run by another important mentor, a woman named Lori Real, who um, was my boss and took what she would say a, a very ambitious quote-unquote hotshot from Washington <laughs> and helped him understand how to fit into uh, a world um, that was a little different than the Washington world. And I, that, I think one of the, that was one of the important things that she did, was really help ground me in the world of state government and how you improve is as much about relationships and help, and having people trust you as it is about your ability to analyze you know thousand lines of code or you know help them understand the, the latest research on the uninsured and the behavior of the uninsured so sure so anyway yeah that's so that that was uh, that job and what happens you know this is an the state government is an amazing path for a young person because I would argue you get much more responsibility than you deserve, and you get accelerated through the, the hierarchy much more quickly than you probably deserve as well. 
state governments for a variety of reasons have been starved for uh, talent and they don't pay very much, right? And so uh, a seasoned veteran in applied policy is probably not gonna go into a state job unless they're at the end of their career. So I've seen many people get a degree in management, a degree in government relations, a degree in communications without going to school, but simply by going into this organization where you had uh -huh. to learn those skills uh -huh. or fail. So you're saying a, a metaphorical degree. Yes, exactly. Right? But you're, you're, it's, a, it's a real learning ground. It is a learning ground. Yeah. And it was for me. Uh, you know, I, I had three roles. One was the role that I came from, which was essentially building a think tank within the state government for around health, health policy which I was very comfortable and capable of, given the skill sets that I had. Uh, the second was running all of the, the Health and Human Services information management. That was the Office of Knowledge Management that I, I worked for, and that, that I went from running a, a very small planning activity to a bunch of employees and having financial responsibility for the entire reporting system of the, of the state. And then what that did was expose me to high-level management within the Department of Health and Human Services, the ways in which the organization was connected to itself and to other organizations. And then there, the, I began to participate in these very high-level policy decision-making meetings and conversations, which then ultimately led me to run the state's Medicaid program, which is you know $500 million health benefit, yeah. and here I am, yeah. you know, a kid yeah. uh, running a very, basically uh, the state's second or third largest health insurance plan. So just to back up for a second, yeah. you, you, you came in initially as a, what was your initial role? An I, I, I just was an analyst, yeah. Okay. So, and then your mentor was, was running the office at the time. That's right. Yep. She left? She, she moved in, uh, into another role in the organization, and okay. I basically took over, took over her okay. role. Yep. Okay. And you had 35 employees? Yeah, right? that's now, right. Now, had you had, had you, had, you you'd performed a kind of mentor kind of role yeah, prior? No, had you no been manner. a supervisor? No, I'd never been a supervisor. Okay. I had never managed people. Okay. I had never had financial responsibility for my own unit. Okay, and I'll tell you, I how many books did I read in that first ninety days, okay. where I was trying to figure out how to to my per, my personality was not necessarily well suited to management because I was um, brusque and sometimes that works as a as a management style, but not often. Very focused, task focused, and when people were doing things more slowly than I would do them, otherwise, I would do them which you can't, you can't have in a management structure. You've got to allow people to develop the skills and do them at their own pace, and you've got to uh, help them improve. Those are all things that I'd never been you know, asked right. to do. Right. Uh, and I would say those poor people who were my first <laughs> managees. <laughs> yes. um, so, but you, know, you get better at it uh, over time, and you... Did you have a mentor that kind of, that you, anybody you talked to say, hey, this is, I'm new to this, and... Or did you largely try to do it on your own? And, and the management, and the management piece. You know, it's interesting. It's the one time in my career where I didn't have a good mentor on the topic. Yeah. Hmm. And I guess that that's interesting. That is something I did mo largely on my own, 
and did not have that you know, person that I would go to once a week or twice a month and say, I've got this, that, and the other thing I'm trying to manage and I'm baffled by this behavior or how do I build myself into this uh, structure in a way that's supportive of those folks but also gets things done. I didn't have those conversations. It was largely learning on the, on the, on the run, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Fascinating. So you talked a little bit about, about kind of the transition from being an individual contributor to being uh, a manager and, mm -hmm. and it's challenging to kind of let that go. Challenging was not the word for it. It yeah. was just, it was, it was painful. And, you know, organizations, uh, human resource departments really need to make sure that they have uh, supports for individuals that are making these types of, of transitions. And, you know, as I said, there's no other organization outside of that particular one that would have given me the opportunity to jump that quickly without training, without experience. And so it was, it was, it was rough. I, yeah. was, I spent a lot of nights trying to catch up, trying to understand how to work with people, um, uh, how to create environment that was um, nurturing, that was, but also had to meet, you know, the demands of, of the job. And all of that within a collective bargaining agreement and a, and a structure, yeah. which was sometimes hard to understand and um, hard to move around in. So it was, I spent, you know, probably the first six months understanding my capacities, things that I had to learn, yeah. building out what was going to be my management style and management approach. And, okay. yeah. Obviously fairly successful, though, at the end of, uh, mm -hmm. of the day, because then, as you were mentioning, you were promoted up to run the state's um, Office of Medicaid Business and Policy. Uh, so what, what does the Office of Medicaid Business and Policy do in the state? Yeah. So when you think about the health policy constructs in the United States, they're obviously Medicare, very big part serving the elderly and the disabled. There's Veterans Affairs that is doing or, uh, the service for veterans. And there is Medicaid, which is a state, uh, federal, partnership to cover low-income individuals uh, for their medical care, for the disabled, and for long-term care for those with permanent mental or physical disabilities. And the, this office has responsibility for the medical management of all those people who are eligible for the Medicaid program. Within the state. Within the state, which now is 140,000 people, or in that time was probably around 100,000, I don't remember exact number. And so you had financial responsibility to the legislature. You had financial responsibility to the commissioner, obviously, who was my boss. You had policy responsibility to the legislature. You had a matrixed management approach to the Medicaid program because lots of the money I had responsibility for, but a lot of the policy issues were managed by others. Others meaning within the within state? This, within the state. Okay. So the complexity of the management issues quadrupled. Can you give an example of this matrix policy oh. shared, shared arrangement? So I had uh, financial responsibility for the management of the medical component of the, the benefits offered by the state. That would touch on the, the services being provided by elderly and adult services or 
So there are long-term care nursing home services, home and community-based care services. Those people are also using medical care. And so how do you make sure that the policies are appropriately intertwined across these two different organizational units. So your organization did not pay, for example, the, um, the monthly bills for somebody to stay in a nursing home? No. no. But if they went to see a doctor as a result of falling or something? That's right. Or they had to have some drug that uh, would help them manage their diabetes or their hypertension and it wasn't on the formulary or wasn't prior authorized. So it, the, the, the complexity of, of it was I think that was the most difficult piece of it for me to understand. So basically it was my first experience with a job that required me to have matrix responsibility so that I had no financial responsibility but I had programmatic responsibility. Okay. And that requires an entirely different set of skills for managing than you know, a, an organization where you're the, the boss and everyone else reports to you. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting process. I'll have to say, though, that the best part of that job for me was actually meeting people who were receiving services or were in some way trying to negotiate with us about care. And I'll give you an example. There was a, a family whose mother had had a stroke, and my prior authorization director had said there was no medical reason for them to have these sets of rehabilitation services. And there's a normal appeal process for prior authorization and the like, and those often come back to the Medicaid director for discussion and conversation. And in some instances, it's pretty clear cut, and in others, not so much. And so in this one instance, I actually engaged with the family around what their mother's needs were and really opened my eyes to how a bureaucracy interacts with the people that it's are its consumers or its customers and that was my first experience with that and it has built into me and my approach towards almost everything I do a, a focus on the actual end user of things much more than it did in you know any other work that I've done and of course that anyone who goes through a management class or a management degree learns that in school sure I learned it as the Medicaid director sure and you actually told me in a prior conversation that someone had given you that advice to set aside a set, a set aside a portion of uh, the day if you can so that people can directly access you because and by people I mean the folks that are using your services or really anybody and the that, this was a mentor who said you know no matter what the business if you lose contact with the the users of your services or the customers or if there's a barrier in what they will say to you about the quality of what you are doing then you've lost an enormous opportunity for gathering information about how to improve your you know your business whatever it is whether it's providing information to the legislature or providing medical services to uh, Medicaid clients or building uh, widgets you know there's there's that quality feedback that bureaucracies get in the way of. So this mentor of mine said, put, put aside a portion of the day, which I tried to do in the morning, where there was no barrier that you could get me on the phone. And yeah, it, was, it was very, very much a learning, learning opportunity for me. What, what, uh, what do you think you really brought to the table in that job based on your prior experience? It maybe kind of made you uniquely well qualified to take on the role. Well, I had it, it, very strong policy experience uh, nationally, 
I had strong connections to the national world. I had very good relationships with the legislature. And how'd that, how did that come up? That, that's, a state. I mean, that's, it, that's in the state. It is in the state. Um, I think in some of my previous roles, I had to engage with legislature about policy, about information, and I think I developed good, strong relationships with people across uh, the spectrum of policy issues, but also of uh, the political spectrum. So Republicans and Democrats both felt I was an honest broker of information and policy. So your experiences while you were an analyst in the uh, doing the research work kind of established those relationships. So they trusted you when you moved into this role. That's correct. Okay, good. And uh, so I think that that was one trusted. To, I had a strong sense of policy. Uh, I was. I worked an awful lot, and I think, um, you know, I had, at that time, I, I had a one-year-old, very young family, so the, the commitments outside of my work were still fairly limited, and so, um, you know, I remember engaging with various people at one or two in the morning and 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, wow. you know, on opposite ends of sleeping, so um, that was... Uh, I think something that you know you bring to the table is that kind sure. of uh, bandwidth. Um, you don't often expect to hear that from a state employee. Well, which people, is what you were at the time. I, I was, and you know, people, um, you know, the, the I have met in the, the Department of Health and Human Services and state government um, um, people of incredible skill and capacity and compassion, and the opposite. And I've also had that experience in the for-profit world. I think that the exposure that state policy, uh, state workers face is so much greater than the exposure of the for-profit community. And that the, you know, my experience in the for-profit world is, uh, excuse me, is absolutely limited. So I don't really know what I'm talking about, but certainly my friends uh, who are in management positions tell stories that are similar to the ones that I would tell about the state um, environment. So, you know, you, you think about, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned about really communications and marketing. I can't tell you how many times someone said, well, I want to have a well-functioning, efficient Medicaid program. And I would turn to them and say, well, then why would you pay the Medicaid director $80,000 to run a business that in the for-profit world would bring three fifty, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year in salary? To some extent, you're going to get what you pay for. I would say, in the past, without, again, hyperbole, I was plenty smart, but you put a 34-year-old individual without a management degree in charge of a $500 million health benefit program. And that's because of the nature of how state government pays people more so than anything else. Okay. So you did you did that job for about two years. Yep, two and years. You made, and you made the, the transition in yep. 2005. You, yep. you left the state government. You yep. took a position as the executive director of the New Hampshire Center for Public Policy Studies, which is where you are today. That's correct. What is the New Hampshire Center for Public Policy Studies, and what does it do? Yeah. So it was established back in 1996 because there is no, and there, there was no, source of unbiased, nonpartisan information about state budget policy issues. And it was uh, established by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, a community foundation, the Business and Industry Association, and the University of New Hampshire. And it was designed 
to meet a perceived dearth of information that was important and relevant to good policy making. And that's really been the mission ever since. How th this organization's mission is defined by our ability to help policymakers broadly understood, understand issues that are critical to New Hampshire's future in a way that is unbiased by politics or self-interest. Okay. And it's a, an independent think tank, really, is what it is. And it's funded by unrestricted donations, at least half of our budget, and the other half comes from special projects that we do for foundations or uh, in partnership with the Business and Industry Association or the Andy Casey family or the Kaiser Foundation to answer some particular public policy topic. So do you have a, an endowment? We don't. Okay. We don't have an endowment. And we're really sort of an unusual organization in that we don't take partisan contributions. Okay. So you wouldn't take a contribution from the Democratic Party? We would not, unless I might if I were also able to get one from the Republican Party. I see. Okay. And in fact, there are institutions that are really interested in the center being good purveyors of health policy information, like hospitals and their contributors. And so I have to make sure that I have the anthems and the insurers that are also contributors so that there's no perception of bias. And okay. my so board... Not just a mouthpiece for... Exactly. Right. The insurance companies or the hospitals. Okay. Uh, my board plays a very important role. My nonprofit board plays a very important role balancing that out as well. We've got the former Republican Speaker of the House along with Democrats on our board so that we can both present a face that is uh, bipartisan, but in the workings of the organization, there are constant conflict conversations to make sure that we are not providing any bent. Other people want to put spin on it, go for it. But anything that comes out of our, our, our offices needs to be clean of an agenda, particularly a political agenda. It's, it's not an easy place to be. It's right in the middle. Okay. And you think about funding an organization like that, people are willing to fund advocacy organizations and others. Um, but this, this has been, um, I think it's a gem. I think it's, this organization is very unique uh, to the country even. And so particularly in an environment where you have 400 legislators, 424 yeah, legislators. That's, that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> I think a lot of people who uh, are not familiar with New Hampshire politics don't realize mm -hmm. Uh, that New Hampshire, this was something I actually learned recently, is, yeah. is the third largest, third, third largest, the third largest legislative body in the world. In the world, that's correct. Yeah. There's the U.S. Congress, yeah, and the Parliament, Parliament, and then New Hampshire, and then the, the, the state <laughs> legislature of New Hampshire. That's yeah. awesome. And they have and they have no infrastructure to support them. They have okay. no research capacity. So you know, it's it's this really is an important organization to the state. And I really I have enjoyed the time here. I've enjoyed watching it morph from a one-man organization in 1996, it, um, split off from the university in 2001 because there was a perception of potential bias if we were at the university. Okay. 2005, I take over, realized that one of the important constituencies for the organization is the business community so that they can understand important policy matters because they are often the ones that are telling the legislature what they will accept, quote unquote, and what they won't. So we invested a lot of energy in um, reaching out and helping the business community understand some of these important topics. And I also recognize that one of the biggest problems with the applied world is still that we do research and it stays on a stump. And you don't take that out there enough to make it part of the conversation 
that's occurring. So I went from spending 20 to 30% of my time out talking to people, giving presentations to almost 60% of my time now. Taking the work that we've done, bringing it to a broader audience, trying to help them understand it so that they bring it back in their own policy conversations with the legislature and the like. The other thing that's just fascinating about this place is that it's not just one policy topic. Right. And, and this that, is not a healthcare thing. It's not a healthcare right. think tank. And that is that that our interests are broad is both good and bad. All right. That, that our interests are broad means that we make connections across multiple different topics that have important um, implications for the state. For example, the question of aging touches everything. Aging of New Hampshire touches everything. And so how do you make connections across multiple topic areas? We're an organization that's uniquely suited to do that because we've had such a broad um, policy portfolio. By the same token, being broad means that you can't go necessarily as deep as you'd like on every topic. And right. so it's a constant balance between breadth and depth. And, but I find it fascinating because it gives me an opportunity to continue to learn new topics, engage with new people, and engage with yeah, just a different group of, of issues. Just, it's fun, I like it. It, it. Just so people get a sense of how big the organization is. It's a yeah. relatively small Very small, group, three, right? three individuals and an office manager. Yep. Okay, so you don't have the capacity to go into either an enormous amount of breadth or depth, really. Yeah. I mean, so how do you uh, decide we want to focus on this topic or we want to look at because yeah. because when you choose one topic you're going to have to let something else go that that's probably right. is interesting and would have yep. bearing so we we are both um, proactive and reactive in our decision making we're proactive at the board level so in other words every three years and sometimes more often than that we revisit the question of the six priority areas and how we prioritize them so you have six prior, okay, so what would So state budget, corrections policy, education policy, healthcare, those types of things. Local government, um, obviously can't work on all of them at the same time. Right. And so we go back and say, what's the most important issue that we're gonna be dealing with as a state? And six years ago, uh, that uh, issue was the economy. Okay. All of a sudden, sure. we had the Great Recession, and we decided that we really needed to invest in some time and resources into getting a handle on some of the major drivers of economic activity in New Hampshire and how we're going to come out of the recession and the like. So that's reactive. That's an example of where we were reactive. An example where we're being proactive um, has, but we've got multiple, but some are uh, in the past when we looked at the issue of dropouts. Our board said that in education policy, this question of dropouts is critically important and we need to focus the state's attention on this issue and we're going to invest significant resources. We're gonna make it our number one you know, priority. State budget is always one of our top priorities okay. um, because that's a, a place where analytic understanding is particularly weak outside of the, the, this organization. And so we focus on we try and stay away from the politics and stay focused on what that budgets actually mean um, and the implications for the state. So, so you perform kind of like a congressional budget office that's function? Correct. That is. I think that's a fair way of describing us. There, we have, I would argue, we probably have the state's economist function. We have CBO function, which are in other states paid for by the state. In this instance, 
we raise money to do this work. It's the, another example of the New Hampshire way. Yes, okay. State budget, uh, state is not going to fund it. They want it uh, if you can raise the money to do it. Right, right. It's a great idea. You should yes. definitely do it. That's right. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> how did you make the decision to make the jump? I mean, it's a natural fit for you given your background, but how did you yeah. decide, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm running this major organization, I'm a young man, you know, 34, 35 yeah. Yep. And that's a, that's a big organization with not a great paying job, as you talked about, but, yep. but, a, but a one of, of real importance. Yep. Uh, you made, and how did it come that you made that jump over, back over here, back into the policy? Back into the policy world. So one of the things about being Medicaid director is a very political job. Sure. Okay. You've got to manage the commissioner, who may or may not be appointed by the governor. You've got to work with the legislature. You've got to work with your management responsibilities, and you've got to work with the other people across state government who are engaging or touching in the work that you're doing. And there was a point at which it became clear to me that my goals and interests personally were not served by staying at the department. Okay. And when it became clear that the then commissioner and I probably weren't going to see eye to eye on the way forward, decided it was best for me to move on. Okay. And I think I had, at the time, thought I might go back to state government because to this day, it was the most challenging, stretching experience in my professional life. Okay. But that's, uh, that's a path that has not reopened itself to me. Okay. Well, that's, you've still got a number of years A number years of years left, to do, right? that's right. Yeah. Yep. Not, yeah. um, you talked a little bit about your board. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little more about the role of the board because this yep. is an interesting governance. Yep. You know, the management of, of, a, of a nonprofit is mm -hmm. very much run by your board, right? You, that's correct. That's yep. essentially your boss. Yep. How often do you meet with the board? How often do they give you? Is it just every three years, you said? Or, or? No, so our, we, I've got a very active board. We okay. meet 11 or 12 times a year, and they serve multiple different purposes. One, they have fiduciary responsibility for the organization. They have governance responsibility for the organization, and they have, obviously, the staffing authority to say, Mr. Norton, it's yeah. time to hit the road. Yeah. Um, but they also have an, an additional role, which most other boards don't, and that is they serve almost as an editorial board for the work that we do. They help us understand the work that's going to be important for the state. They help us understand how the work can be best communicated, and they also serve to vet it from a political perspective because we've got folks from the right and the left on the board, and oftentimes we've got people on opposite sides of a topic, so that it cleanses it of the potential bias, and you get consensus on the board of how to produce information or whether it's the right information to share, you know, all those critical questions that you have about research and actually having an impact on public policy. And when I first joined, I felt like their input was overbearing, and that their management of the organization was at the micro level. And now I believe they are an extra staff person or two, and that I'm just very grateful for their input. And boards, high-functioning boards in the nonprofit world can be a huge benefit, but they're hard to construct and hard to maintain and hard to feed. Um, but if you do, you can have 
you know, a real strong addition to the work that the organization does, not just the governance and the fiduciary responsibility. These are people who have demonstrated an interest in your organization, in your mission. Yeah. Um, how do you bring them more broadly into the fold? How do you get them to be an active worker in this enterprise that everyone around that table cares about? It's been fascinating. So how does the board perpetuate itself? How, how does someone come to be on the board uh, when someone leaves? How does the board pick another member? Yeah. Or, or do you, I mean, who, who, who decides who's on the board? It's a collaborative process. Okay. We have a governance committee that has responsibility for reviewing and vetting potential candidates, making sure that we've got the right number of board members and that we don't have too many board members going off or coming on. And, but this staff has the, the primary responsibility of saying to them, here's the vision for the board. Do you agree, disagree? If you agree, here are three or four people that we need to think about along down the road for having potential board members. And let's go have coffee with them and talk to them. And then the board gets engaged around these people. So it's staff. M many times we get suggestions from board members about potential candidates. But we have a, a matrix that tells us the set of characteristics we want the board to have. And when that matrix starts to fail, then we start to try and put people in different spots. And just to give you an example, one um, dimension of the matrix is ge geography. We'd like to have a geographic mix. The other is diversity. We'd like to have a nice mix of women and men and those of uh, individuals of color or we also like to have a, a political balance, Republican, Democrat, independent. So yeah, that, that's the, that is the least sexy part of nonprofit management, but arguably one of the most important parts of nonprofit management. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, what would you say then your major, major contributions or, or the, uh, the, the center's major contributions over the last, during your tenure? Yeah. And kind of what are you working on now that's really exciting? I think probably the single most important thing the center has done over the last five or six, seven years is focus people's attention on the fact that we are a state that had incredible tailwinds for 30 or 40 years that helped across almost every policy dimension. That, that tailwind was a highly educated workforce and jobs migrating from the Massachusetts metropolitan area into southern New Hampshire. Fastest growing economy, fastest growing state, all those monikers were true, um, but probably not because of the policy decisions that the state was making. In the last six years, we've demonstrated across a, a variety of different dimensions that we're going to have to start engaging in a policy conversation in a different way than we've done in the past because we don't have the advantages that we've had in the past. Is that because New Hampshire had comparative advantages over Massachusetts? That's basically? correct. Good. That's correct. Okay. Friendlier business environment? or Slightly friendlier business environment, um, better schools, um, quality of life. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that you know, in, the, in the gubernatorial debate, our paper, which was headwinds to tailwinds, excuse me, tailwinds to headwinds, was the centerpiece of La Montaigne Hassan discussion in the first budget. And I, I, we as an organization are very proud of that. that. And that was a product that was staff, board, everyone was engaged because it was going to be controversial to say that 
this great place that everyone loves has really fundamental structural problems that are going to have to be dealt with now. And we haven't had to deal with these in 30 years. So that was, that was uh, one piece that I think was really profoundly important for the state. And then when you ask other people about the work the center has done, probably one of the most important pieces of work we did was to support some analysis of expanded gambling with the uh, Governor's Commission that was established to review gaming in New Hampshire. And that was a place where you can imagine it's very hard to get information that's unbiased. And we withstood enormous, enormous pushback from both the pro and the anti-gambling people in the state of New Hampshire when we re re released our report which said, yes, there are economic benefits. You have overestimated them by a magnitude of one or two. And yes, there are costs. And by the way, anti-gambling people, you've overestimated them by an order of magnitude. So what we did in that work was eliminate the hyperbole and allowed the real conversation to go forward, which is, do you think New Hampshire should have expanded gambling or not? And so those, those are two really important pieces of work that we've done. What, do I, what am I personally, do I think that my contribution has been? You know, I think when an executive director comes in to a new organization, you've got an opportunity within 90 days to six months to figure out are you going to try and do something differently? Because generally you'll have an opportunity as an incoming person to provide a different vision. And the, the vision that I shared with you earlier was as an organization we needed to spend more of our time out in the community and we needed to engage more effectively with the business community. And I think that's, that's personally the vision that I brought that shaped uh, um, the organization and shaped our ability to influence policy, which is ultimately the, the goal of the organization. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk generally about uh, the field of public policy, which yeah. is kind of your, it seems like your true passion. Yeah. Um, you've been involved in public policy for going on 25 years now. <laughs> Yikes. Um, <laughs> how has the culture of policymaking changed during your career at the national and the state levels? from your perspective? Yeah. So, well, that's an interesting question. So it's definitely changed in a funding perspective. So public policy is still driven by what the federal government is paying to understand, what the major foundations are paying to understand, and what the political environment is demanding. So the topics of interest have evolved and changed and you know, in the 1990s, it was a focus on uh, low-income women and children in health policy and Medicare decision-making, and all the funding was focused on that. So, you know, the research, the, the policy implementation grants, everything. That's changed fundamentally now. And you think about in the health policy environment, what are people funding now from a public policy perspective? Well, right now, we're just mostly engaged in a a constitutional question about whether the Affordable Care Act <clears throat> is constitutional or not. Yeah. So just the nature has changed and what and the, and the, the funding and what people are funding and trying to understand has changed pretty considerably. I would also argue that just as newspapers have had to change the way they deliver information, the biggest change I would say in the public policy world is how 
organizations like mine or the Urban Institute or Brookings or Heritage or anyone serve and communicate information to the policymakers. You know, you, if you had come into my office 10 years ago, you would have seen 15 bookcases. And on those 15 bookcases would be five or six copies of every paper the center had produced. Now if you walk around our offices, you will not see one. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Don't know, but it's fundamentally changed. The products have changed, the way it's communicated has changed, and I'd be interested to see whether we're more effective or less effective at, at actually helping people understand so public policy. Technology has evolved. You, so, you, everything is on your website, or yep. you've got social media presence, and yep, yep. blogs, and whatnot. Yep. I mean, if you were to ask you know, the average person out there where they get their public policy information from, you know, a long time ago it was television, and to some extent radio, and newspapers. And you ask the policymakers over at the legislature, you say, where do you get your information from? Same, same thing. Now you ask them, where do you get your information from? And they say, we've got so much information, I don't know. It's just flowing at them at a, at, at a rate that is overwhelming. And I think one of the critical public policy questions going forward is, how, do, how does the, the industry evolve so that we become curators of the right information? And I don't know that any organization has done it real well. Brookings has done it, tried to do it. You know, where is the place that people can go where they will get the small pieces of information they need, but where that information is real as opposed to a soundbite and allow you to dig down into the, you know, the, the policy questions if you have interest or not. And you know, newspapers went through that in the last 15 years. And if you look at the, the online presence of, a, of New York Times now, it's unbelievable. The information, the analytics, the reporting policy is trying to figure out how, what role it's going to play um, going forward. And then I would say there's, there's a degree that the, the political environment has made um, public policy work really hard. You know, the, um, actually moving something um, outside of the political rhetoric is hard and has become and that's harder. Different. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that's harder. How has health policy specifically changed in your career? Uh, any yeah. different than the rest of the environment? Yeah, no, absolutely it has. Um, I would say that for the first 20 years of my career, it was proactive. So in other words, the work I was doing was trying to help organizations set agendas. Back in the early 90s, it was I did a lot of work on physician payment reform. Uh, Mid-90s to late 90s, it was how do states, how do you help states make important decisions about you know, public policy? I would say in the last five years, at least since, the, the, any, since 2008 and the signing of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, pub, public policy has almost been completely reactive to the changes that have been put into place by the Affordable Care Act. And I think that'll be, that'll be what we end up talking about for the next five years or so. And if you use Massachusetts as an example, which went through this before, Health policy in Massachusetts has largely been about responding to these huge structural changes that have occurred as a result of their implementation of the, their similar Affordable Care Act-like program. Going forward, what's health policy going to look like? It's, I think it's going to be a lot about the structure of the industry. You know, you're seeing the changes that resulted from the expansion in health insurance coverage associated with the exchanges and 
Medicaid expansion and the movement towards accountable care organizations. Now you're hearing about Aetna and Humana and Cigna and Anthem merging and creating you know, much larger organizations. What does that mean for the, the healthcare industry? Hospitals merging, vertical, horizontal, horizontal integration in ways that we haven't seen since the, you know, the great steel days when you had you know, huge monopolies that were being established to produce scale and capacity and outcome. I think that's going to be a big, uh, big piece of, of the puzzle, including antitrust issues associated with the, the creation of those accountable care organizations. And so and I think we're going to be looking at those things for a long time. In the short term, people are going to say, is this a success or a failure? That's the big public policy question about in health policy right now, the, the Affordable Care Act. So, okay. Great. Is it, so this is a theoretical question that I'm curious your thoughts on. Uh, is it possible to separate good public policy research from ideology? And I know you, you, you've talked about how yeah. the, the uh, center is supposed yeah. to be uh, neutral, but it seems to me that there's, in, there, there, there's got to be some ideology embedded perhaps in the choices you make about how you pursue uh, the analysis, the questions you choose to look at. Yep. So remember, the, the <clears throat> we make our decisions based on a board that's balanced politically, geography, men, women. So theoretically, we've crafted an organization that is going to answer the question, if you move ideology aside, what are the most important issues that New Hampshire faces? And can we add some value to this conversation going forward? So theoretically, I believe we actually do come fairly close to separating ourselves out. There are certainly things that I would like to look at because I'm interested in them that the board has disagreed with because they, they don't believe that it is important enough for the organization or for the state. Now, I think there's a bigger, more important question that your question leads to, and that is, can public policy change a person's ideology? Hmm, okay. Public policy analysis. And I've learned that belief is a really strong power. And making someone curious about their own beliefs is the single hardest thing to do from a public policy perspective. And ultimately, our ability to make people think curiously about their own positions is where we will succeed or fail. That's where I succeed or fail. Why is it? Why do you think it is that it's so hard to get people to challenge their basic beliefs? I'm reading about it, the psychology of it now. Yeah. <laughs> I, you let honestly, me know. I am. I know. <laughs> because it, it, it is, um, I mean, it's human nature to believe you're right. Sure. And can you challenge your positions um, that are based on an ideology as opposed to the facts. Now that's one dimension. And I'm just thinking now of another dimension, and that is the moral dimension. That there are folks who have said to me, in the context of trying to help them understand the policy question, Steve, thank you, but I just don't care. This is the thing that I believe is right to do. You can tell me that there are financial implications of this public policy change down the road. I just don't care because I think the moral imperative is that we do them. Okay. So something like uh, gay marriage, for example, might be a... Yeah, and, and you'll notice that we touch none of those issues that are ultimately moral, morally based. Okay. Uh, because there's, those debates are largely about what people feel and are not necessarily informed by information. 
you've talked a little bit about this, particularly in New Hampshire, uh, but I wanted to kind of ask you broadly, how important are organizations like the Urban Institute or the center here to policymaking pro process? Uh, why would you argue that a robust policymaking process needs these kind of organizations? Uh, and to say kind of, why not have all this analysis done by a government agency, like, like the Office of Planning and Research that you worked in, or the Congressional Budget Office, or the Office of Management and Budget at the federal level? Why not just say, you know, this is really important, we should have the government do it? So just a moment ago, you asked me about the concept of an agenda and ideology. And I believe that there needs to be a democracy of ideas in public policy across all policy topics, just as there, people believe we need a democracy broadly writ in the political environment. So we need someone on the left, we need someone on the right, we need someone in government, and we need someone in the middle, so that there's enough information out there that they can really understand the various dimensions. So here in New Hampshire, we've got an organization called the Josiah Bartlett Center, which is an organization to the right, We've got the Fiscal Policy Institute, which is an organization to the left. We've got us in the middle. Uh, and we've got something called the Legislative Budget Assistant in the, at the State House that does some uh, budget analytics. And legislators look at all three, four, or should, if they don't. So I think you need to have multiple sources of information, is really my answer. You can't just have one organization put it out. You run the risk of missing something because of that one perspective. You know, I read everything that uh, Josiah Bartlett puts out. I read everything that state fiscal policy puts out so that I understand how perspective or, and also can sometimes challenge what I'm thinking about things. And so the multiple sources of information are really important. Okay. Let me ask kind of one final question, some thoughts here. Mm -hmm. uh, from you, is in my department, health management and policy, some of the students are interested in pursuing health policy careers. Uh, what advice would you give them? Where should they be trying to get their first jobs? And what further education should they pursue? And ultimately, what kind of opportunities are out there today in health, in, in health policy or policy in general? Yep. Well, the first thing I'd say is, wherever you think you're gonna to be today is not where you're gonna be, all right? There's only one person in my graduating college class of my small college of social studies, which was 40 people, has the job they thought they'd have at age 47. So be open to a divergent path, I would say. You're better off taking a job with someone who's gonna teach you a great deal or an organization that's going to educate you where there's a career path than you are to stick on one path to a vision of the future. So that's my first piece of advice. Two, in the health policy world, I can't say again more clearly State government is a, is a great opportunity for early career development. And there are amazing opportunities for individuals that you would never get in another organization. Obviously, hospitals, health systems are going to be looking for analytic capacity and organizations, every, every university seems to be developing a think tank around healthcare. So there's gonna be opportunities in, in the university system as well. But if you're if you're actually interested in a, in, a, in a policy career, state government is a great place to begin. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That's been fun. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire 
and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.